Hello, and thank you for joining us today for Frost and Sullivan's latest webinar from our mobility practice. Today's event is titled, Making Mobility Work for Everyone, How Cities Are Embracing Smart Solutions to Drive Change. My name is Anna, and I oversee Frost and Sullivan's Growth Innovation and Leadership Briefings. Our presenters today are Frank Levesque, Partner and Business Unit Leader here at Frost and Sullivan, Shweta Surrender, Industry Principal, and joining us today is guest speaker Maria Striganova, Sustainability Programs Manager for FIA. Our agenda today will consist of the Executive Summary Findings, Potential and Transformative Growth Opportunities, New Mobility Solutions, Autonomous Readiness, Sustainability, Digitalization, Urban Logistics, and finally, key takeaways and top five future predictions for cities. With that, I would now like to hand the presentation over to Frank. Thank you, Anna, and good morning and good afternoon to everyone. Um, I am delighted to take part in this briefing with, with Shweta and, and Maria uh, today uh, to share some very exciting work that we have done on the topic of, uh, of smart city mobility. Um, the um, I think in this slide, we, we try to present some of the top five challenges that cities are facing in terms of, of, of transport efficiency. The first one uh, most talked about urbanization, especially with more than 70% of the population that is expected to live in cities by 2050, compared to 50% today. Increase in congestion, in congestion sorry, uh, with a, a driver experiencing on average 25 to 28% increase in travel time stuck in traffic or emissions or pollution with nearly 7 million deaths that can be related directly to poor air quality or safety, road safety, with over 1.2 million deaths a year attributed to road accidents, many of which are avoidable. And finally, fleet utilization. Personal cars remain parked for more than 95% of the time. Urban mobility often operates in a, an environment that is too fragmented, operating in silos and unreceptive to innovation. And a more comprehensive and well-coordinated management of mobility supply is desired. Indeed, now is a time for cities to invest in their future. Cities with a clear mobility vision and a comprehensive strategy to implement will emerge as smart mobility champions while successfully creating a welcoming experience for the city dwellers and in turn attracting corporate investments. Frost & Sullivan's global mobility team has developed a proprietary smart mobility city tracker where we have analyzed over 150 transportation parameters across 100 global cities to gauge the current performance and future preparedness of cities towards smart mobility we have evaluated cities under six smart mobility themes including new mobility solutions autonomous readiness digitization sustainability smart mobility smart logistics and overall smart city outlook. It simultaneously provides insights on how the cities are performing at the present and also evaluates how far are they from realizing 
their long-term strategies and how can they achieve them. On the left-hand side, we highlight the collective impact of these 100 cities that we have analyzed on, the, on year one of the project. And next, on the, on the right-hand side, we segment cities in four clusters in reality. The innovative cities first. Only eight cities here uh, with the like of Singapore, London, Helsinki, Tokyo, Boston, Amsterdam, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. They, they are termed as innovative cities as they have not only implemented rigorous, smart solutions to improve their transportation system, but effectively reduce transport inefficiencies such as personal car use, CO2 emission, or congestion in the last 10 years, acting as forerunners and model cities for transport innovation. You have the, the dynamic cities. Another 42 cities here in the developed regions such as New York, Paris, Frankfurt, or Sydney. These cities have been quite active in implementing policies that facilitate smart mobility such as multimodal transport, smart parking, or emission regulation and standards. Tier 2 cities in Europe particularly feature in this segment. You have the, what we call the proactive cities. These have, have some smart regulation or proposed solutions in place. However, we, they, they have been slow in implementation or user adoption, mainly owing to inherent infrastructural bottleneck, lack of actionable strategies, or consumer acceptance. And finally, the, the passive cities are the ones that have a, a fragmented, unregulated transport system leading to high level of congestion, poor public transport services and infrastructure alongside increase in disposable income created a huge growth in personal vehicle fleet over the last five years, making it difficult to manage. We actually grouped the 100 cities we have analyzed into three broad clusters based on their structure, location, demographic, economy, and mobility landscape. These slides provide an overview of the potential and opportunity for different smart mobility in each city cluster. Uh, for first looking at new mobility solutions that, um, you know, for example, in the, the tier one developed cities have developed the necessary framework and infrastructure to launch mobility as a service. That is a potential to that has a potential to generate revenue of 100 billion dollars with 3 million subscriptions for cities per city, given existing high share transportation uses. In tier two cities developed uh, the, that have proposed uh, the introduction of, of LEDs or low emission zone, reduce uh, parking space in city centers and so on. This can potentially reduce car use for daily commute by 10%, opening up opportunities for new mobility players to penetrate these markets. In emerging cities, the inefficient transport system alongside rapid growth in transport demand offer three times growth potential, covering 86 million daily passengers' trip in emerging cities. Look, if we look at the autonomous readiness, we see supportive regulation that the cities 
are formulating with will facilitate commercial launch of driverless vehicles as early as 2000, 2021 in tier one uh, developed city. Also, we are finding that tier two developed cities show shorter travel distance, which offer potential to be served by automated shuttles. However, in emerging cities, infrastructural barriers will hinder adoption of autonomous vehicles in public roads until 2030, maybe except uh, the exception of China. If we look at sustainability, we see 15 to 30% growth in electric vehicle that is expected until 2025. Following stringent road laws and proposed diesel ban alongside hefty purchase incentives in tier one developed cities. The electric vehicle market will gradually pick up also in tier two cities with higher range vehicle entering the market alongside infrastructure investments. There is a huge untapped potential, but demand will swing as stricter emission standards and incentives to will drive electric, vehicle electrification uh, and that will be driven by the fact that um, these regulations are being introduced by emerging cities as we have seen in Beijing and New Delhi. Looking at digitization, we see open data sharing platform and digital labs attracting hub developers to develop and pilot applications that address urban mobility challenges in developed cities. 30 to 40% of cities are going to incorporate ITS, smart ticketing, and on-road sensors by 2025, as well in emerging cities. And finally, looking at urban logistics, we see efficiency in urban delivery systems through smart warehouses, cloud-based logistics as a service, which has a potential to reduce distance travel for deliveries by up to 45%. And we also see exciting innovation in last mile delivery, uh, such as drones uh, that are being tested and adopted in many, in many cities. In this section, where we deal um, uh, with, uh, in further detail uh, with the transformative, transformative growth opportunities that exist across cities, mainly owing to the technology disruption that are happening in the transportation sector. It also highlights the benefit or impact that smart and innovative solutions will have on this, these cities. Here we provide an overall perspective on how much uh, people across the world travel in a year and how does that vary across countries. While developed countries prefer cars, Bus or trains is still a popular choice of travel in emerging, emerging nations. The chart on the left captures billion passenger miles traveled across selected countries in a year. It also breaks the passenger miles traveled by different modes used. For instance, in the US, 91% of passenger miles are traveled by car, while only 38% and 18% of passenger miles uh, traveled by car in China and India, respectively. The scattered chart on the, on, the, on the right plots per capita passenger miles traveled in, in the x-axis and income per capita on the y-axis. We see here the higher the income uh, of an individual, 
the higher the miles traveled. A passenger travels only 2,200 miles per year in an emerging nation, as compared to over 9,000 miles in developing regions. Here, we capture how commuting pattern evolved in different um, um, regions and areas. The, the top chart on the left shows that while an, an average person traveled 5% fewer miles in 2018 compared to a decade, decade ago, total hours spent on traveling increased by 17% since 2010. This capture how congestion is increasingly putting pressures on city transport systems and causing passenger inefficiencies. Moreover, a passenger, passenger spends 45 minutes in emerging cities to travel 15 kilometers, which is 40% more than developed cities, as shown on the, chart, on the chart below. Now, the chart on the right-hand side compares our cities and rural passengers have different commuting patterns in different countries. The chart on top shows that rural residents make 13% more trips a year than city, city dwellers. But less than 5% of their trips are made using different modes of transport compared to 30% uh, by city dwellers. Also, the chart below highlights that over 90% of rural households own at least one car compared to only 69% in urban areas. In fact, only 26% of urban households have access to two cars or more. But I will let now Shweta to dig, dig deeper into this uh, analysis and share it with you. Over to you, Shweta. Thank you, Frank. So as Frank mentioned, um, we are going to go deeper into the impacts of the different aspects of mobility particularly within the cities, um, and then draw reference to how cities really need to begin to refine their approach to mobility as a whole. I will start off with looking at it specifically from the new aspect of new mobility. And by new mobility, we're referencing to uh, the evolution of new business models like car sharing, ride sharing, e-hailing. We've also looked at mass transit within this segment as well. Um, now, this slide gives an overview of the potential impact that we estimate new mobility can have, new mobility solutions can have on existing transport patterns and traffic flows within the city. Uh, this insight has been drawn from case studies that we've seen conducted across a few cities, or in some cases, analysis that we've done across the 100 cities as well. So the first point where we reference the travel time, uh, we've arrived at this because we've estimated that on an average, personal cars tend to take up somewhere close to two-thirds of the road space, but they contribute to less than 40% of the trips. Conversely, shared vehicles take up only 11% of road space, but account for 56% of passenger trips. And if you're able to substitute most of the personal cars with shared space, you would end up improving congestion quite dramatically and thus reduce vehicle traffic on the road and have a positive impact on travel time as well, reducing it by anywhere between 12 to 20 percent. Um, the second point that we realized is shifting to shared mobility could have a positive impact on CO2 emissions as well. So the City 
of Lisbon actually conducted a pilot. Uh, they limited the vehicles in the city centre to just shared mobility vehicles only. And on that day, they measured what the CO2 emission was. And they found two things. One, that the total number of rides in the city centre could be provided solely by 10% of the uh, fleet if it was shared. And this would reduce the CO2 emission limit by 27%. Um, third, we do estimate that by shifting to shared mobility, you could reduce the total number of vehicles miles travelled by 22%, because the vehicle utilisation rate improves dramatically, automatically just making it a more efficient transport system. And lastly, it can have a significant impact on the travel cost altogether. Um, so this is drawn from a case study in Birmingham as well. We found that the average car owner in Birmingham spends something close to $7,600 annually on car ownership. But if they substituted with um, a mass subscription, so the WIM app has launched in Birmingham and they offer an, a monthly sub uh, subscription of $65 they can potentially save close to about 90% of their car ownership costs by switching to mass on an annual basis. The next slide gives a snapshot of the mode share split that we found across the different cities. And we've clustered it into three separate uh, segments. So we, we, have, we see a segment of cities emerging that are heavily geared towards public transport. And this is due to the government having invested in public transit infrastructure on one hand, and also having adopted very stringent regulation and policy network that encourages the use of, use of shared as well as public mass transit. Hong Kong is a great example of a city uh, like this, and actually Hong Kong leads across all the 100 cities that we found in terms of uh, minimum use of private car. So if you look at the stat, you would see that less than 8% of all trips traveled are on are with private car. Uh, the, main, the majority of trips are either on mass transit, which could be public transit, whether it's tube, tram, bus, or any other mass mode, or it's shared transit, whether it's taxis, whether it's um, uh, car sharing vehicles, bike sharing, or even walking and cycling. And this shift in Hong Kong has actually happened over the last 20 years. And it's because the government made a concentrated push to dramatically in invest in public transit. So they expanded the infrastructure to level that within a five-minute walking distance of every residential um, uh, of every residence in Hong Kong, you would have access to public transit. So they make it so convenient that people automatically change their behaviors. Additionally, they also adopted stringent regulation by capping the number of driving licenses that are issued every year, um, increasing road tax to the extent that it costs almost as you pay almost as much as you do to buy the car in road tax on an annual basis. So, and additionally, they also um, uh, made parking very expensive in the city, shifting consumer behavior to other modes of transport. Um, other cities across the world are starting to adopt similar kind of uh, strategies, particularly in APAC, China, they're starting to take their cue from Hong Kong and adopt similar policies. We're starting to see similar kind of trends in Europe as well. London is a great example. So in last year, the mayor of London announced that uh, parking is not going to become mandatory for any new construction if they're within a 10-minute walking distance of uh, either a bus or a tube stop. And automatically, if you remove parking or make parking very expensive, you see a shift to public transport. In fact, in 2008, within the city of London alone, parking costs 
grew by about, uh, were increased by 50% by the city council. And in the one year period, they saw a drop in personal car use by 6%. So there's a direct correlation over there. So similarly, you're starting to see similar trends in Hamburg, in, um, in Paris as well, that will positively impact the motorist split, uh, weighing it towards shared and mass use. The cities in the center, um, like New York, Singapore, Chicago, Washington, even Dubai, are cities which we consider transitioning cities because while they haven't made the shift towards heavy public transport use, they're clearly moving in that, that direction uh, due to, again, regulation and softer factors as well, like investing in infrastructure, uh, making parking very expensive, um, as well as encouraging um, adoption as well as availability of shared mobility use. For instance, in quite a few of these cities, there are heavy subsidies offered for car sharing providers that encourages provision of these services. New York is a great example of a city doing this. Um, another example of a city is Dubai. So Dubai was, uh, we would call them a car champion way back in 2009, but since then they've managed to reduce car usage by 15%, simply because they invested 4.5 billion in their mass transit system. And that's paving the way for more sustainable transport across the Middle East. The cities at the bottom of the chart are ones which are um, uh, car champions, as we'd call them. And these are cities that are still trying to shift towards new mobility sedation. That is their long-term goal. For instance, Los Angeles is one of the most congested cities. And they uh, have a very, very ambitious public works program where they, uh, they've set aside more than 40 billion uh, to be invested in rail, in bus, and other improvements, expanding the public transport system within the uh, city of LA, uh, along with encouraging shared mobility by providing subsidies for shared mobility use and investing in bike share systems. But in the short to midterm, uh, they are uh, encouraging the shift to more sustainable and shared mobility by allowing um, access to uh, or investing in high occupancy vehicle lanes, basically carpool lanes, allowing electric vehicles to access those lanes as well. And over the last few years, that started to bring about a behavior shift um, in these cities. Las Vegas, also Kansas, all adopting very, very similar kind of strategies. The next slide gives you a little more insight into some of the trends that we're seeing specifically in emerging cities. Now, emerging cities are quite unique in the sense that uh, public transport infrastructure is woefully lacking, certainly, but they also have one of the worst congestion problems globally. Um, in the emerging cities, from the work that we've done, we realize that on an average, it increases the travel time by 42% and costs a driver in those markets something close to $400 a year, $400 a year in lost work hours and fuel consumption. And less than 20% of the population actually owns a car. Um, almost 63% of uh, daily trips are made by shared modes. However, transport supply and in infrastructure is grossly inadequate. Now, in this chart, we've shown the number of daily trips in, in select emerging cities and the share of trips made by cars. And what we see is that almost 90 million car trips are made daily in these cities. And our, from, uh, our conversations with the city authorities as well, there is a heavy emphasis to encourage shared mobility use to deal with the issues of congestion. And this is where we think there's a huge, huge market potential that lies for shared uh, business models. Um, 
from our analysis across these business models, we do have an understanding of the implications, and we estimate across that a shared mobility vehicle can effectively cater to about 20 personal trips a day. And thus, uh, we estimate that uh, to feed the market demand in uh, just across these various emerging cities, 4.3 million shared vehicle fleet would be needed. And that would mean um, that there is a potential for the existing market to grow by 300% just in the emerging cities alone. And this is something that a lot of the players in the automotive ecosystem have realized and are beginning to tap into. The next slide um, gives an overview of the overall new mobility market across these 100 cities alone. And I'll start to compare that with how they stack up against the global mo mobility market size as well. So just across the 100 cities, um, when we looked at the bike sharing fleet, we realized that 60% of the fleet is based in these cities alone. And the majority of those states, unsurprisingly, are in China. Um, so China itself, uh, the cities of Beijing and Shanghai, for instance, have an on average fleet, bike sharing fleet sizes somewhere between one to two million. And you have a number of fleet floating service providers like Ofo and Mobike, who've uh, uh, flooded the market in some ways eh, over the last few years, but they're slowly starting to become more closely regulated. And while we don't see the bike share fleet sizes shrinking, we do think that the growth would be uh, would continue, but in a more measured manner. Demand responsive transit or uh, demand responsive shuttles is another very, very interesting market. And I've got a slide a little later that gets into it in greater detail. But as a snapshot, we do think that the potential for this fleet to grow is quite significant. Today, just across the 100 cities alone, uh, the fleet size is 40,000 vehicles, and that accounts for just 20% of the global fleet. In fact, the majority of this fleet lies in the emerging markets in China, as well as in emerging, emerging cities, as well as cities in India like Mumbai and Delhi. Um, the next uh, point is on the car sharing fleet size. Across the 100 cities, 50% uh, of the global fleet is located, accounting for about 140 vehicles. And we do expect um, this market to grow quite significantly. In fact, some of the largest car sharing uh, cities are within the 100 that we've selected. Tokyo, Seoul, Beijing, Moscow are great examples of these. Carpooling as well is another business model that's taking off in a big way. And uh, when we look at the member base of carpooling, um, it's very, very popular in European cities. And just across Europe alone, the key cities in Europe alone, we have 12 million membership, uh, 12 million members located. And they account for something close to 30% of the global car sharing market. Uh, the e-hailing market is quite significant as well. Uh, the total fleet globally is about 10 million. But in the 100 cities, 3.5 million taxis, um, are, uh, connected taxis, are, 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 are based. And this fleet is continuing to grow. The next slide gives um, a snapshot of where we see the market for car sharing actually evolving. Now, to uh, understand market potential for car sharing, we've looked at three different data points. We've looked at uh, population density, certainly. Uh, we've looked at the availability of parking spaces, and we've also looked at the cost of car ownership, which is depicted by the size of the bubble. Uh, now, what we realized is that rising cost of car ownership, and here we've taken into account parking, uh, vehicle insurance, road tax, car maintenance, fuel costs, etc., all have a direct implication on car sharing. And these make car sharing a very, very popular alternative to owning a car. 
um, if you uh, look at the statistics in a few cities, for instance, in New York, um, the average driver spends about somewhere between 12 to um, uh, 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 12,000 to uh, uh, sorry, about 2,000 to 2,500 on car ownership annually. But on the other hand, if you look at the average cost of car sharing membership, it sits somewhere around $1,200 or so. So it just makes sense to shift to um, shared mobility in that case. Finding a parking spot as well um, is very, very difficult in most of the bigger urban centers. And we found on an average 10 to 15 minutes is wasted per journey. But with adopting a car sharing solution, often that challenge is taken out of the equation because parking is clearly provided for car share vehicles and heavily subsidized as well. What we found is that um, in tier one cities in developed APACs like Tokyo, Singapore, they only have about five parking spots per 100 vehicle users. And in uh, these cities, it costs the driver approximately uh, uh, $11,000 to maintain a car a year. Um, in fact, in Tokyo, there's a new mandate that um, uh, any establishes that a car buyer can only buy a car in Tokyo if they can prove they have a designated parking spot. So this is uh, really restricting access to cars in these cities. And conversely, what we're finding is that car sharing proves to be a perfect solution in these markets. So what we're starting to see is tier one uh, developed in emerging cities across all regions have a few commonalities like limited parking, high cost of car ownership, high population density. And these are cities where we do think that there's high potential for car ownership. I'm sorry, high potential for car sharing operators to actually launch services. The next slide gives a snapshot of, on the left-hand side, you see a snapshot of the car sharing fleet sizes across some of the key cities that we've looked at. On the right-hand side, you see a snapshot of the bike sharing fleet sizes. Now, um, when we think about car sharing, I talked about uh, uh, the potential in Tokyo. And you can see that's already being reflected in the fleet size as it stands today. You have close to about 20,000 car sharing vehicles in Tokyo alone. Shanghai, Beijing, also very, very high level of car sharing fleets. And we're starting to see a similar kind of trend beginning to take off in Europe. Moscow is a great example. So uh, over the last two years alone, the fleet size in Moscow has more than tripled to reach about 6,000 vehicles. Uh, as it stands today. And we spoke to the city authorities, we uh, spoke to drivers themselves to try and understand what the uh, motivation is for them to shift towards car sharing. And we also spoke to one of the pre uh, predominant car sharing operators, Yandex, who recently launched. And the common thread from all these interviews that we conducted was uh, prohibitive cost of car ownership as well as uh, congestion in the city is what is driving uptake of car sharing. Um, the right-hand side of the slide gives a snapshot of the bike-sharing fleet size. Now, the, distinct, the difference that we see between car-sharing and bike-sharing is car-sharing tends to be private sector-driven, but bike-sharing for the most part tends to be heavily subsidized by uh, the local city governments themselves. So, for example, um, uh, in the city of London, they've invested close to uh, 450 billion in developing uh, cycling infrastructure. They heavily subsidized the um, Santander cycling scheme um, in, um, in, in London. Similarly, across uh, most of Europe, most of the bike share schemes are subsidized by the government and contracts are held directly with them. 
we're seeing a similar kind of trend in the APAC region, in uh, Americas as well. But we do think that bike sharing is going to be a very, very important mode of, sh of shared mobility in the future because it serves to provide last first and last mile connectivity. And governments have realized that if they provide first and last mile connectivity to and fro mobility hubs like tube stops and major rail stations, they automatically increase uh, passenger uh, um, acceptance and passenger miles traveled on mass transit, which has a cascade of positive implications on the transport infrastructure, like positive impacts to congestion, as well as air quality in cities. And that's why we see a huge investment from that end. The next slide gives a snapshot of uh, the demand responsive transit market across these 100 cities alone. Now, uh, what we've uh, found is that while the market is quite nascent today, there is significant growth potential. Globally, we expect the market to reach about 100 and, uh, um, uh, to be valued at more than 150 uh, billion in terms of the revenue opportunity by 2025, uh, by, by 2030. And a lot of this market potential is going to sit in the uh, big urban centers we see across the globe. From our conversations with city authorities, particularly in Europe and uh, North America, we found these uh, a clear trend towards them looking at ways in which they can potentially convert some of the public bus routes to demand responsive transit because that would improve uh, the level of service they are able to offer their citizens as well as also improve the profitability of the existing bus networks. Today, most bus networks run at very low levels of utilization. In London, for instance, it's somewhere between 9% or so, which is very, very low. But if they convert it to on-demand, it just becomes a much more efficient system. So we estimate that 35% of the existing networks could potentially be converted to on-demand. And if this happens, in the tier one developed cities, we do expect the market for DRT to grow by about 40 to 45%. Tier two developed cities, while there will be growth, it's going to be a little more measured because these cities are ones where you have a very high dependence on private car use. So the market will scale up, but it will take a little longer. Emerging cities are where we do see significant growth. And this is driven from the fact that not so much a push from the private sector, from the public sector, but rather it's a push from the private sector. And this is because they're filling a need in the market. So in most of the emerging markets that uh, we looked at and, con and uh, the mapping that we did from of existing transport infrastructure in cities like Delhi, in Bangalore, in um, Jakarta, in even China and other cities in APAC, we found that the um, existing public transport infrastructure does not meet the need, the transport demand. And urbanization is increasing threefold over there. Frank had quoted some stats earlier that talked about how it's increasing exponentially. Most of that growth is actually coming from the emerging markets. So the need for alternative modes of transport is much more pronounced there. And this gap is being filled by DRT systems. In fact, in uh, India alone, you have a fleet size of something close to about 12,000 vehicles that has grown over the past 12 months. The next slide gives a snapshot of another very, very interesting mobility solution, which is mobility as a service. Effectively, it's um, a digital solution that allows um, a consumer to plan for their journey, book the journey, as well as pay for the journey on the same digital ticket. Um, as you can see, we're already starting to see mass take off 
um, across the globe. Uh, quite a few cities have varying levels of mobility solutions that have been launched. Now, in order to enable successful deployment of mobility of, of mass services, you need three things. One is you do need um, um, a high public or shared transport user base. Second, you need access to real-time data because transport data is key for a successful solution. And third, what's increasingly important is supporting regulation that encourages collaboration between different transport players. So based on our analysis, we found that the tier one developed cities are most equipped to launch mass because they already have the supporting infrastructure and platforms. And the only thing that's lacking is the underlying mobility regulation. And that needs to be refined such that transport providers are incentivized to collaborate with each other as well as uh, uh, share APIs and share data amongst each other. And two, uh, you do need more stringent regulation, a push from uh, the government as well to ensure that public transport is given a higher preference as opposed to shared mobility use. Now, the government of Helsinki is um, a great example of a city that's moving in this direction. So they've actually instituted, brought in a regulatory framework that mandates sharing, API sharing among different mobility operators. And they're starting to think about launching their own mass platform from the public sector. Um, over the last three years, you've seen a private provider, Mass Global, launch their solutions. And while they're doing fairly well, um, what ha what is evident is that amongst the various modes of transport, um, there is a higher use of car usage because of people opting for trips through taxis as well as car rentals, as opposed to using public transport. So the city of Helsinki has realized that it might make sense for the government to also have a hand in uh, launching a mass solution because that would ensure a more equitable use of shared mobility transport and really bring to the fore the vision of mass where you're driving people to use various modes of transport to fulfill first and last mile connectivity, driving them towards mass transit and um, increasing the use of uh, uh, bus, tram and tube, thus impacting, impacting congestion and improving travel, travel efficiencies. Um, the next section gives a snapshot of the autonomous, uh, the insights that we've got from the of automation. Now, our analysis over here is um, uh, looks at the impact of autonomous driving across the 100 cities. And some of the key insights that we found about the potential is that um, autonomous drive, today road accidents cost cities close to about 2.5 billion a year. And if this is substituted with uh, autonomous technology, it could reduce deaths by, um, or improve road safety by close to 90%. Uh, autonomous vehicles are presumed to be more efficient because they could communicate with traffic signals, they could communicate with other, other vehicles, and thus they would improve efficiency in the traffic system, which would reduce congestion by 30%. Now, the average driver today spends about 40 to 90 minutes a day driving. Um, if uh, they're able to uh, commute in an autonomous vehicle, that gives them back 7.5% of their annual day, um, which translates to savings about $3,100 a year. And lastly, autonomous vehicles, simply because of more efficient transport patterns, would also improve fuel efficiency by 30% without shifting to electrification. 
Now, across our 100 cities, we provided a snapshot of um, implications of um, and the shift that we're already seeing towards automation. So 60% of the cities already have enabling infrastructure, so they have fairly advanced 4G connectivity and have a clear roadmap towards adoption of 5G. Uh, 53 c- cities are, have, we have been identified as deployable, as deployable markets because these are cities where the average trip length is fairly low, sitting below 17 kilometers, which is the ideal trip length for autonomous, uh, an autonomous vehicle. Uh, 44 cities are already conducting autonomous pilots. And in terms of regulation, though it's fairly nascent, about 10 cities that we looked at have already started to think about creating an autonomous framework for uh, commercial, for uh, for pilots, uh, conducting autonomous pilots. And they're starting to clearly think about how to create a regulatory framework for commercial operations. And now this slide gives us, gives you a snapshot of um, the open licensing policy that we're seeing or the shift towards regulation that we're seeing with respect to automation. Now what we're seeing is that cities in North America are certainly leading in terms of autonomous regulation. So 33 out of 50 states have a clear policy framework for autonomous vehicle testing and licensing. Um, The cities that we looked at in California and Arizona, for instance, are so favorable that they that they don't need a driver to be present in the autonomous vehicle. Um, quite a few of these cities also have um, also have uh, started pilot testing. Las Vegas is a great example. Europe is also starting to introduce very elaborate framework for automation. Helsinki, London, cities in Paris and Germany are great examples of this. And in the APAC, cities of Singapore um, and Tokyo are the ones leading in this regard. Um, now, this slide gives a snapshot of the shift towards trip length. On the left-hand side, you see, highlighted in red, the average trips uh, that are conducted by uh, uh, trip length by private cars. And we see majority of the trips by private cars in Tier 2 cities are less than 10 kilometers. Um, 20% are between uh, 10 to 16 kilometers, so 80% of trips are less than 16 kilometers. And this would be ideal, these are uh, trips that could easily be substituted with autonomous shuttles. And that's why we've identified tier two cities as ideal markets for autonomous shuttles. Um, And when we looked at the total number of trips that could be replaced, on an average, we've estimated it across the different regions. So you see the right-hand side, the stats for the Americas, Europe, et cetera. And at a global level across the 100 cities, 20.4 billion trips would be replaced with autonomous vehicles. This slide gives a snapshot of the potential markets for autonomous taxis. So we've looked at three aspects, ride-hailing driver wages, fleet sizes, and the size of the bubble denotes GDP per capita as an indication of customer propensity to spend on autonomous taxis, which initially might be offered at a slightly higher price point. Cities like New York, Singapore, San Francisco are primary markets because they're very mature in terms of having large fleet sizes, but they also have very, very high driver wages. So there's an immediate business case to shift towards automation. Um, The ones in orange are also uh, uh, clear secondary markets because of the high cost of the driver wages. Cities in red are, um, I think, more long-term in terms of their potential, with the exception, I would say, of maybe the Chinese cities, because their regulation and government um, investment could potentially drive adoption of these solutions. 
this slide gives you a snapshot of the overall ranking of cities across automation. And we've looked at three aspects. Uh, the existing initiatives that we're already seeing, whether it's pilots, autonomous pilots, or the rollout of commercial operations. We've looked at the funding, which is both private and public sector, and we've looked at the a current and future regulatory framework and policy outlook. And here we've kind of ranked cities to understand uh, where they fall on the autonomous index. And cities of Los Angeles, Dubai, Singapore, um, and Copenhagen are leading in this regard. Dubai, for instance, has set itself a clear target that they want 15% of all passenger journeys to be on autonomous modes of transport by 2030, and that's really pushing them up the ranking. The next section brings out some of the analysis that we've done with respect to sustainability. So in this slide, it gives you a snapshot of uh, the size of the uh, electric fleet across the, diff across the 100 cities that we've looked at. So we see 25% of the global electric fleet uh, lies in just these 100 cities alone. Uh, the chart in the center gives you a more detailed view of the electric vehicle park across each of the regions. And the chart on the right-hand side, at least on the top part of the chart, gives you the uh, potential for charging infrastructure that we're already seeing amongst these 100 cities alone. Um, the next slide gives you a snapshot of um, the future market potential that we think exists for electric vehicles. Now, the bar graph gives you the fleet size of electric vehicles today. The ones in green are where we're seeing the highest fleets. And the line graph gives you an indication of the attractive EV attractiveness uh, index, how cities score on that, which has been uh, created taking into account existing EV charging infrastructure, financial incentives, future benefits, and investment in future infrastructure. So Beijing, for instance, is a market which has a fairly high electric fleet compared to the other cities, but this has nowhere near scratched the future, the uh, total potential. So today, the fleet size in Beijing, uh, the electric park is only 2% of the total car park, and the government has set itself a target of reaching converting 10% of the car park into electric vehicles by 2021. To encourage this shift, they're investing in charging infrastructure and they're offering heavy subsidies and incentives. And it, so if you want to launch a solution with, which is linked to electrification, this is a clear market that you should look at. London is another market. The government is, uh, is mobilizing about 400 million in electric uh, charging infrastructure fund this spring. And that's really going to drive the growth of the EV market in addition to the other incentives they provide. This slide gives a snapshot of the electrification potential across the different cities. So um, I did show you a snapshot of the overall park. This just gives you a clearer view of where the park sits by the different countries. And you start to see where initiatives are also being launched. So in India, in the Middle East, and Singapore, the government has clear plans to drive adoption of electric vehicles uh, by investing in charging infrastructure as well as enabling fleets. Um, the next slide um, gives you an indication of uh, a snapshot of the zero carbon deadline across the different cities. Again, this would heavily drive adoption of electric vehicle fleets. Now, we see uh, cities in Europe and North America have more heavily weighed towards aggressive zero carbon deadline policies for themselves. Helsinki, North cities in Norway and US are great examples of this. 
The next section focuses on, on digitization. Now, I do realize that we are running short of time, so I'll skim through some of the uh, slides over here. I'll focus on just one or two of them. This slide gives you a snapshot of the level of digitization that we're seeing adopted across cities. So you see cities on the right-hand side, ones which are in brown, are ones that have fairly advanced level of open data available and also have heavily invested in analytical capabilities, like London and New York are great examples. And these are cities where you're going to see um, greater adoption of new mobility solutions as well as greater adoption of transport innovations like masks and autonomous innovations. Um, the next section looks at the uh, market for urban logistics. So um, I will just spend a minute on the slide for uh, drone deliveries because this is where we think there can be a, a paradigm shift in the overall logistics market. And the top half of the slide highlights cities where you're starting to see a lot of innovation actually taking place in terms of drone regulation and drone pilots that are emerging. Um, cities like Shanghai, Beijing, etc., are already launching commercial operations of drones. And with that, I'd like to um, conclude the presentation and come to the key takeaways. We do have um, um, a, a city uh, poll which we'd like you to answer. And Anna, if you wouldn't mind launching the poll right now. Yes, Suita, I have launched the poll, so our audience can take a moment to select their answer, and we will reveal the results in, uh, in one minute. All right, fantastic. And um, what, so if you wouldn't mind going and selecting your options, we will be able to see your votes almost immediately. And then what will be interesting is we'll show you what the results are from Frost and Sullivan as well and be interesting to compare the two. Um, so Anna, if you wouldn't mind displaying the uh, poll results in just a minute. Yes, most certainly, most certainly. Um, we have about 18 more seconds. And then I will close the poll question out. While we're doing that, um, we also invite our audience to um, to click on the attachments tab. There is a document that goes into more detail regarding Frost and Sullivan Smart Mobility City Tracker, and uh, this intelligence provides insight into new mobility solutions, autonomous readiness, the digitalization, sustainability, logistics performance policy and regulatory framework, and transport landscape and vision. So um, all right, let me go ahead and reveal the, uh, the poll results here. Okay. So this is what we have, uh, Shweta. It looks Thank like you. we have 65% indicate Singapore, actually rather 61% indicate Singapore, 20% Helsinki, and 9% London. Over to you. Fantastic. And on the slide that you just see up here, uh, as you can expect, we seem to be in line with the audience uh, opinion as well. So Singapore does score the highest in terms of the overall smart mobility ranking, followed by London and um, San Francisco. Helsinki is a little further down. Um, so we're almost there, but not quite. Now, when we looked at the broader um, uh, ranking of 25 cities, although we've done it for 100 cities, when we looked at the top 25 cities, we found that close to half the cities, 12 cities are actually in Europe, uh, nine cities are in US, the Americas, and about four cities are in the emerging markets. So that would be Tokyo, Singapore, etc., that are leading the way. In terms of um, our key takeaways, we do think that 
new mobility market potential has significant growth opportunity and we expect the market to double by 2025. All of the 100 cities are going to have digital capability by 2030. Um, the growth of electrification will be quite significant across the cities as well, and mobility as a service solutions will take off in a big way. And now I'd like to hand it over to um, our co-presenter, Maria Striganova, who leads the uh, sustainability programs within um, FIA. And FIA has done a lot of work within smart cities itself over the last three years. And they've launched a whole initiative which is driving this conversation and the discussion across cities themselves. And I'd hand it over to you, Maria, to maybe talk a little more about this in your perspective. Thank you, Shweta, and good afternoon to everybody. Um, it was a wonderful introduction to my presentation with a very insightful overview of various sectors and key performance indicators across the cities that have been analyzed through the Smart City Tracker program. But before I go into the details of my presentation, I would like perhaps to just explain why the FA is releading this topic and taking an active role in the Smart City debate and the urban mobility topic in general. Most of you will know the Federation for its function of a governing body for the motorsports. We do regulate various championships at the global level, and we act as the laboratory for the development of technologies that could potentially be transferred from the racetrack to the road for the benefit of a, uh, of a more mass use of the transportation side. But at the same time, we also represent uh, consumers, and through the automobile federations and clubs, who are actively involved in various topics related to mobility, from road safety to sustainable mobility, environmental standards, sharing practices, um, regulatory aspects, and public policy making. So through them, we, we do lead the discussion on how urban mobility policies should be formulated, um, how uh, consumers should be represented in the most efficient and considered manner. And we are leading a number of uh, consumer information programs uh, on the one hand side for the environmental aspects, testing vehicles uh, on their environmental performance and, and how to better inform the audience about the most environmentally sound vehicles produced in the market, but also um, passing the, um, a more insightful analysis on the technological readiness and how uh, testing on autonomous vehicles and various connectivity uh, structures and technologies should be led by the industry. So that's just a small introduction to where we come from, and as you've mentioned, we have decided to be more actively involved in the uh, smart cities debate and this topic, and we looked internally what is our asset and what is our strength in that. Uh, and again, the double structure or the dual structure of the federation seemed to be the right way to start with this good starting point, um, and we decided to use our flagship championship on the sustainability front, which some of you may know, it's the Formula E Championship, which is an, um, a series of electric racing in the city centers that are taking place um, exactly um, in the cities, uh, led and powered by the city authorities. So we decided to use that platform um, as an area and an arena for the debate and the discussion of, on what the future of mobility will look like and what are some of the key trends that the cities could address or grasp and capture today to make sure that we tackle some of those key challenges that Frank uh, has presented on his first slide earlier um, in this talk. So we have uh, come up with this program which brings together city authorities on the one hand side, mobility innovators on the other hand side, and also various industry representatives who are uh, leading the future of the smart cities development to discuss uh, how to better formulate and shape the future of mobility in the cities. 
it's a B2B and B2G oriented platform, um, and it is run in cooperation with the Formula E Championship, as I've mentioned. So we want to pass the message that doing it in the city centers and demonstrating the use of technology, specifically in the e-mobility, is the right message to pass forward, and it's something that could be replicated at a broader area and be passed into the masses as the cities are reviewing this important topic. Just to give you a short snapshot on, on, on what the program looks like, it comprises the three important pillars and uh, the conferences that are organized on the days before the races um, represent high-level forums where we gather um, a, an audience of uh, different stakeholders, bring different sectors together for an insightful debate and discussion. And an important part of that is that uh, these events are taking place at the formerly facilities, so we do have an opportunity to demonstrate uh, what kind of e-mobility innovations are piloted throughout the championship. Uh, some of you may know that we've, we've made a lot of progress on the battery efficiency side, and now the entire race of the one hour is uh, led by only by one vehicle, which demonstrates the readiness and the maturity of the um, battery technology. And this is something that potentially we want to demonstrate as a use case for the, uh, for the road industry and for the road user industry. Uh, another important pillar is the startup contest, as you see on the slide. We try to identify those leading talents in the field of urban mobility and smart city generally um, among more innovative companies who are sometimes looking into more disruptive ways of changing the urban environment. And a, a wide range of topics that we're looking into is certainly the battery efficiency, the shared solutions, some of the data analysis schemes, the use of sensors, and many other examples that are coming from the startup community. So what we're trying to do is to identify these ideas, bring forward the most competitive solutions, and make sure that they are interconnected uh, with the industry on the one hand side and with the cities so that they can better identify those opportunities and, and integrate them into more broader urban ecosystems. And finally, uh, we also um, recognize that the city's efforts to improve their urban mobility uh, plans and their sustainable mobility strategies should be recognized and should be awarded. And among the cities that are hosting the Formula E race, this is already a recognition of their openness to the topic of itself. We try to identify those best practices and those um, case studies that seem to be successful and that could be replicated at a broader level. It could be anything of a uh, the testing of an autonomous vehicle um, a system in, in Montreal to a shared mobility um, technology launched across all areas of Berlin and to many other examples. And this is somewhat some, an area where we're partnering with Frost to make sure that these practices could be better analyzed and the set of the KPIs would be applied for more evidence-based assessment. And this is just a, sh uh, uh, a snapshot on the calendar and some of the events that we were running this season and um, we'll be happy to keep you informed with about future events. And just the second part of my presentation as we were talking about a lot about concrete solutions and, uh, and some of the um, innovative platforms that, that should be um, replicated in the cities based on those best practice examples. Uh, the FIA is trying to look into practical ways of addressing urban mobility challenges, and we are looking into specifically the traffic management uh, operations and the traffic management platforms that seem to be in a lot of cities tier two, tier two types. Tier two types are not addressed at the moment. Uh, so through real world scenarios, 
um, uh, we try to see how to help the cities to ensure that everyone has a safer and more efficient, more sustainable place to live, work, and play, and move. And we have identified the simulation models and the modeling um, platforms as such um, as a testing facility to guide the cities and to allow them identify um, how transportation system will look like, um, evaluate the impacts, and then identify the best strategies for achieving the low. So on this slide, you will see the regulatory issues that we, we believe are the key challenges uh, for the cities today, and I think that's in line with Frank's uh, slide again. Um, the issues are obviously replicated from different regions and from different perspectives. And some of the mechanisms were already mentioned by Shweta, and for us, the infrastructural challenge is a big one. We also do focus on multimodality and try to make sure that, that the ecosystem is diverse and that consumers have various choices. Um, the traffic uh, topic for, for this um, FA program um, is obviously there. And finally, the deployment of new technologies and the new innovative systems. Um, is something that we look closely into, and we do want to make sure that the technologies that are provided for the consumers, that they're well tested, and that there's no safety bias that is uh, involved into it. So that's just to finish off that. Uh, why do we believe modeling and simulation could be the right way to go when planning the urban mobility strategies in the city? It seems to be um, quite a, a safe and, and secure way of, of testing what is working uh, in the urban mobility system today and what could be potentially um, added or modified or improved in the future. And today, the full range data software allows you to do that and we encourage cities to run and uh, apply and deploy different data mobility systems. And the more data is collected, the more output you can potentially receive. And this output could allow you to play with the elements with the block and simulate um, any type of urban mobility area or dimension, whether it's uh, uh, management of specific traffic flows, um, elimination of road safety hazards, deployment of autonomous uh, vehicles, autonomous technologies. So all of these components that Shweta was previously talking about uh, can be predicted, can be analyzed in advance. And what we try to put forward is some sort of a platform that will be accessible for different users. Obviously, the, the network uh, that we have and the automobile clubs that we represent, but also um, a number of uh, institutional stakeholders and international organizations that are playing an important role in this field and would be ultimately be able to use simulation models to predict the best case scenarios of mobility in their cities and be able to guide cities towards the right investment in infrastructure or towards the right deployment of technology that would be the most favorable for the final users and for the consumers as we do care about um, uh, the benefits for the society and for the cities' sustainable development globally. So that will be my last slide and uh, I'll be happy to take questions when we, once we start the discussion stage of, of this webinar. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. So at this time, we're going to go through our questions. I see that we have a lot of questions coming in, so we're going to try to answer as many possible live. If for some reason we don't get to your question, the team will take that offline and get back with you. So our first question here, hello, how is it possible that Los Angeles is an innovative city and a car-dominant city in the same time? In what consists the innovativeness of new mobility in the USA? Um, I'll be happy to take that question, Anna. So when we uh, looked at the overall ranking of cities across smart mobility, we've looked at five different aspects. 
uh, we've looked at how they score specifically with respect to new mobility, how they score with respect to sustainability, how they score with respect to autonomous readiness, how they score with respect to digitization, and with respect to logistics. And then we've also formed a view of the overall smart outlook, which is the regulation, um, uh, the macroeconomic and demographic indicators that is a good, uh, gives us a good idea of market potential in those cities. Now, when we look at the city of Los Angeles today and look at the more share splits, certainly it's heavily weighted towards car usage, something like 60% of the trips is through car. However, the reason why LA goes up in our ranking is because they have a clear plan and strategy to shift towards a smart and sustainable and shared mobility. So um, I mentioned the point earlier about the government having set aside $40 billion to invest in expansion of public transit infrastructure. That's much higher than most of the other cities we've seen globally. So that's a very aggressive strategy. Apart from that, they've also launched quite a few innovative pilots that are already giving them um, interesting analysis and data that will lead to commercialization of new mobility opportunities in the next five years. So for instance, they have a pilot for a mass solution that's being run in conjunction with conduit technologies within the city of Los Angeles. Um, they've, in, they've invested heavily in uh, bike-sharing solutions as well. Um, so um, the, uh, and the MTA in Los Angeles has introduced a bike-sharing program, and they've already, already seen that that has the impact of in increasing ridership on public transport. Um, in terms of autonomous vehicles as well, uh, there is uh, quite a bit of new technology that's emerging that's um, uh, being pushed in Los Angeles. The city has been quite proactive in thinking about how they're going to regulate the framework in enabling pilot testing, as well as laying the groundwork for commercialization of commercial, commercial operations by 2020. So we're taking a holistic perspective of what's going on in LA, we do think that uh, within the next three to five years, um, uh, the transport landscape will change quite dramatically. Thank you, Shweta. Now our next question, given how the mobility scenario is evolving in cities, how are the traditional players, including the car manufacturers, adapting to it? Um, I can start off with it and then maybe Frank, it'll be interesting to get your perspective and Maria yours as well. Sure, yes. um, what we've seen is that certainly from you know all the stats that you've seen through the slides, what's clear is that there's a distinct trend to shift away from private car use. I wouldn't say private car ownership, but certainly private car use towards shared mobility use. Um, and what we've started seeing is that players across the automotive ecosystem have realized that there's a tangible monetization opportunity that, uh, that exists here, and they've adapted their strategy to take advantage of this. OEMs are, um, are in some cases, OEMs are on the forefront of this shift. Uh, for instance, if you look at the shift that we're seeing in the car sharing market, um, recently, BMW and Daimler merged their mobility uh, operations, and after that, that merger, uh, one of the uh, focal points of the new uh, joint venture they've set up is car sharing. The car sharing market share of their joint venture accounts for something close to 45% of the global car sharing fleet, so they're only leading the way in that regard. Even with respect to launching mass solutions, um, 
the uh, Daimler launched its Nouvelle Solution, which has now been renamed ReachNow under the new joint venture, which has um, a clear strategy for expanding globally. Uh, they've got a very, very aggressive revenue target that they're hoping to, to hit, as well as a membership base that they're hoping to hit in the next three to five years. Um, and they've already you know, reached, um, I think they've already got over 24 million customers who've launched, uh, who've, um, uh, who've signed on to their membership. Uh, Maria, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. Thank you, Shweta. I think this was a very exhaustive answer, and this is exactly the trend that we are observing uh, through our interaction with the OEMs. They're certainly recognizing the need to, share, to, to enter this shared mobility mode and shared economy trends. And as you've mentioned, a lot of this shared mobility services or platforms launched by the car manufacturers were quite successful. Something that I would also like to underline is that um, car manufacturers are obviously aware about the value of the data collected and the importance of sharing that with the right stakeholders. And we see that exactly, for example, in the, in the case of Los Angeles that has been previously discussed, OEMs are partnering with the city authorities and with the Los Angeles Department of Transportation to contribute to the mobility data specification program. So they're not only sharing uh, vehicles and, and running the shared mobility platforms, but they're also collecting the data on the use patterns on, and on the demand patterns, sharing that with the city to allow for a more informed policymakers. And as a matter of, uh, of fact, the policies are, are shaped in a more consultative manner. So the city is slowly shifting towards more inclusive uh, approach when it comes to the um, mobility services provision. Um, and then obviously the private vehicles use uh, is not fully forbidden, but it's provided. It's also backed with different alternatives and opportunities. And uh, the interesting factor is that, in, in essence, OEMs are leading the shift as well. So I think their openness also to this various connectivity options and, and the data sharing uh, policies is an interesting development in this last uh, uh, in the last couple of months or years. Okay, I mean that's very very interesting, Maria. Um, I'm conscious that we are running out of time as well. Um, Anna, do we have any more time on the platform or would it be better perhaps if we um, if we took the other questions offline and got back to the respondents later? Yes, we'll need to take the rest of the questions offline. So we're going to close the uh, session out. We want to thank everyone for joining us today. Those that have joined us in the middle of the session, please note the on-demand recording will be available shortly. And um, we want to thank everyone for uh, participating with the poll questions. And also we want to thank again Maria for joining us with the, uh, for today's session. Thank you and enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy the rest of your day.